And uh, yes, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, let me again just kind of catch you up to speed on what we're doing. Our prayer this year when we hit 2021 had just been looking at this year as just a year of spiritual health. Our hope is kind of coming out of 2020 and maybe a lot of frustration, bitterness, isolation, just maybe a lot of toxic thoughts. Our, our hope has been like, Jesus, purify us. We want to be a church just for you, set apart for you. And so we're looking at 2 Corinthians as Paul walks us through this letter. It's just a new way to live, like a new way to do life. There's the way the world does life, and then there's the way of Jesus. And we want to follow the way of Jesus. And so we're looking at this as a new way to live. Last week, we'd gotten to chapter 8, and Paul shows us that under this new way to live, there's a new way to give. There's a new way to do generosity. This, chapter 8 and 9, is actually the longest ongoing section of Scripture that just speaks of giving and generosity. Now, you guys know this. Uh, we don't shy away from any topic, whether that's sin, hell, repentance. We don't shy away. For some reason, this topic almost feels off limits. And really, I think what Paul is trying to do is saying, hey, this is such a vital part of our spiritual disciplines, of our spiritual formation. Paul actually says, I want you to excel in this. And so Paul, in chapter 8, we're actually going to cover 21 verses today. Uh, so we did verse 1 through 9 last week. We're going to look at verse 10 all the way through chapter 9, verse 5. We're going to break chapters. Uh, but we're going to walk through this as just how do we give? What does true generosity look like? And then how do we steward this well? And so Paul is going to kind of show us uh, his encouragement to the Corinthians. Now again, uh, I want to make sure you understand this. If you missed last week, please go back and listen, because each sermon just builds off the other, obviously. Um, just so you know, we spent five weeks in chapter five. All right, we're going to do three weeks in two chapters. So I'm trying to rush this. I'm trying to not rush this, but get through this, because you're like, oh, another message on giving, really? Like, yes, uh, this is Paul's heart as we walk into these chapters. Now, let me say this. Last week, we looked at the model, the means, and the motive of generosity. The model, he pointed to another church, the means through love, and then the motive, he says, it's the gospel of Jesus. I want to make sure as we continue this conversation, I mean, Paul, through the lens of generosity, I believe gave us one of the greatest verses on the gospel. I think you could say like the John three sixteen of a New Testament epistle is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul says. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I want us to hear that. He's saying, in light of generosity, I'm, I'm calling you to live a generous life. He goes, we cannot forget the one who's the most generous. You know the grace of Jesus. Jesus left heaven, came to earth. He said, had no air to lay his head. He lived a poor life, but not just that. He actually lived poor spiritually in the sense that he took on the sin of the world at the cross. He became poor so we, who are poor, might become rich. I mean, you see, this is the great exchange. I mean, the gospel really kind of communicates this idea that where there is love, there's going to be giving. For God so loved the world, he what? He gave. When you love someone, when you love something, there's going to be giving, there's going to be generosity. And here's the point that Paul's making. He's saying, Corinthians, I'm calling you to live a generous life, but I'm not trying to guilt you into it. Um, it's sad that so often the church can be known for just trying to guilt people into generosity or guilt people into giving, when in reality, Paul says, grace is the greatest motive for generosity. Those who've been truly affected by the gospel of Jesus, if grace has penetrated your heart and your life, he's, he's really shown us that a generous life is bound to happen. If the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, means something to you and me, you can't help but reflect on the generous gift that God gave, that God gave his best for us, that God switched places with us, 
so that you and I might be rich. We might have Christ's righteousness on our life, spiritually rich. And the gospel of grace really is just the gospel of generosity. And so Paul's just kind of showing us through the lens of this, like this is the motive for giving. So as we walk through this, I don't want you to forget that. We're not going to leave that. We ended in verse 9. We're going to pick up in verse 10. But again, as we kind of make our way through this, just another preface is um, if you are new or if you're not a believer in Jesus, by, we have no expectation, obviously, whatsoever. But if you have been a follower of Jesus for years and Jesus has every area of your life, but he doesn't have your, your finances, maybe this is an idol in your life. Maybe this is something that's kind of holding you back from just greater growth. I mean, in reality, you just think about generosity, giving. That might be one of the last things in our faith that grows, but Jesus is like, I want all of you. It's not about the money. It's just I want all of you. Do I have all of you? And we can apply this to any area, any topic. Does he have your life when it comes to your identity, your sexuality? It just any, any area, Jesus goes, I just want all of you. You are mine. You are bought at a price. And so Paul is saying, hey, in light of this, generosity, what it does for us. Like what water is to fire, generosity is to greed. See, generosity is a great way that just God deals with those heart idols within us. And again, the reason why I just want to bring this up before we pray and move on. You know, I think a lot of times people look at the Bible as like outdated. You know, does this even apply to us, these churches 2,000 years ago? How does this relate? Listen, I think you and I, we know this. We live in a self-absorbed generation. We live in a selfish generation. We live in a time where people, you know, like the motto is just just treat yourself. And it's kind of like, you do you, all about you. Generosity is just a way for us to say, hey, no, no. We're going to live like not just for us, but for those around us. Like we're going to try to meet the needs. Like again, the Bible speaks of this topic because this is still an issue in our day. God knows this still might be one of those last things that goes in our life. So Paul's just trying to speak into it. So our hope and our heart is Jesus. We just, we really want the gospel of Jesus to motivate us. And we want to steward this well. We want to have... Uh, we want to we want to do this well. We want to do this with men and women of character. We want to use our time, our energy, our resources well for the kingdom. So we're going to read 21 verses. So I just figured we'll pray, and then we'd read later. Cool? Can we do that? All right, let's do that. Let's pray and just invite the Lord to this time. Father, we just want to thank you so much just for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that as we work our way through this book, that God, obviously, your, your spirit wants to speak to us in this way. Obviously, you want to address things in my heart, in our lives. And God, we ask that this would not just be out of obligation, out of duty, just another way to pay the bills. But Jesus, I just ask that you would birth something within this community here. That there'd be radical generosity because of the grace of Jesus. That we'd be so moved, we would just understand, we would just sit in the grace of Jesus that you were rich and you became poor, so we who are poor might become rich. We thank you for that. God, I ask that you just move in this place. I ask that, God, you'd stir hearts, that you'd encourage, that you'd speak, and that you just move, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. I'm not proud to admit this, but yesterday while I was at Starbucks studying for this sermon, I overheard a conversation, so I might have listened a little bit, uh, but I was studying for this message, and behind me, I just there's a, a group of people sitting, talking, and I just hear them talking about the church, and my ears kind of perked up, and South Florida churches, and you know, uh, they're pr- you know, probably 30, 40 years older than me, but just talking about how they went to the church and lived in the church, and the church is just a giant joke. It's brought so much pain and hurt, and they're naming people and saying things, and I'm just like typing my message. And I, I hear her, I hear one lady bring up, she just says, you know, my mom, I just watched her from a little kid tithe faithfully and bring her check with her faithfully. And it is just one giant scam, right? And here I am studying on generosity. 
And I'm just listening to this. And it was just kind of the classic story. I was a part of the church. They didn't accept me. They didn't accept my sexuality. They didn't accept who I was. They rejected me. I reject them. And there was a little bit of like, goodness, well, the America's kind of going down the drain. I guess we could use Christians and Catholics right now to step up, but actually we really don't need them. And I'm just kind of just taking it in. And, and as I'm listening and, and I, as I'm kind of receiving that, I'm just going, you know what, Lord, I want, is there truth to this? Like, has the church abused this? And I think there is a lot of pain. I think there's a lot of hurts. And we kind of mentioned that, but you could see that when you've watched Christian TV or maybe you see people selling their like sweat rags to heal you and maybe they act like God is going broke and if you don't give, God's going to go broke and maybe there has been an abuse of this in some ways and we got to acknowledge that. And I, and I really do believe there's also a very smart strategy of the enemy because I really do believe that radical generosity from believers in Jesus can ultimately change the world. There's a side of this that I think the enemy would love for the church not to be generous. He would love for us to not want to be givers. I think he's winning that battle in many people's hearts and minds because, well, they're just going to misuse it. They're just going to abuse it. It's not doing any good anyways. As the lady said, it's just one scam. When ultimately you see when the church is just radically generous, like in the book of Acts, you just see people coming to know Jesus. I'm not saying it's because of the generosity, but that's going to be a part of it. When people say, you know what, we're not going to live for ourselves. That's the way of the world. The way of Jesus is if there's a need, we're going to meet it. I really believe that God wants to do something within our hearts, within our community, of not giving out of obligation, not that paying a tithe is just like some sort of bill, but in reality, saying, no, we're going to give and we're going to give generously. I mentioned this last week, but it's just so true. It's funny how for me, just growing up, Tithing was more naturally easy. And we talked about how the Old Testament focuses on tithing. The New Testament focuses on generosity. And I think in the church today, we kind of go, you know, sweet. The New Testament doesn't really mention, you know, tithing. That's awesome. I want to just be really clear. I think tithing truly is easier. I think generosity is harder. I think it's harder to be generous. I really think it's harder to go the extra mile. You know, if, if under the law, they gave more than we under grace, maybe something is off. We're under grace. It's not, this is not law. Paul's trying to do something within the hearts to remind them of the gospel of Jesus, ultimately saying, hey, don't forget that God was way more generous than we could ever be. This is the motivation in the process. But again, obviously there's some maybe heart check going on or something happening. Paul is just showing us what true generosity looks like and what even good stewardship looks like. And that's what we're going to see in our text as we walk through this. But what does true generosity look like? You know, when I was 18, I remember we were sitting uh, with a group of guys with my pastor um, back in Southern California. His name was Pastor Chuck, and we were sitting with him, and he, he brought up a story, and I just thought it was so fascinating how to share it. He's like, you know, in the 80s, um, you know, my ministry, his ministry is like on the radio, people hear it, whatever. He goes, I get a letter from this really wealthy guy in Texas, and he sends us a check to our church for $500,000 in the 80s, right? $500,000. And he says, hey, I listened to your message on the radio. I really enjoy it but I have some issues with some things. I think you're one of the better teachers, but here's my questions that I have. I think you land here, I land here. I want you to know if, if you will change your position or if, if you agree with me, there's another check coming for a million dollars, all right? And Chuck got the letter and he read it and you know, he's like, do I just answer the guy's questions? Do I, how do I do this? So he writes a letter back to the guy and just says, you know, thank you so much for your letter. He goes, by no means does God need or want your money. By no means am I supposed to change my position on things. My position on these things, and he shared what those were. He goes, I believe to the best of my ability, I'm interpreting it correctly, I'm not going to change my position for you. And so he sent back the $500,000. He says, I cannot accept this money. We do not want the, the million dollars as well. Now, as he's sharing the story, I'm like, why don't you just cash the $500,000, then write the letter? You know, my wicked heart, I'm like, what's up with that? You know, that's, you know, he already gave that to you. But I love, you, you see that extra mile of, no, no, that's, he goes, this is not true generosity. 
You're trying to manipulate the heart of God. You're trying to manipulate people. We're not going to change our position to fit your style. My thing is, within the church, you've seen a pain on both sides, whether leadership or those who give, giving with strings attached to it. Paul is just addressing to the Corinthians, hey, there's a need in Jerusalem. Remember the context? There's a need in Jerusalem. The Macedonian churches are getting involved. Do you want to be a part of this? Actually, if you, we'll read the text in a second, but they wanted to be involved before the Macedonians and kind of forgot about it. And he's like, hey, the Macedonians want to meet this need. Don't you want to be a part of this with us? There's a need there. Let's meet it. So as we walk through this text, I just think that Paul is showing us, here's what true generosity looks like. Not manipulation, not obligation, not unwillingly. This is what it stems to. And ultimately, it's through verse 9. So let's just read verse 9 because it's going to be our bridge to verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I said it, but let's just read it, and we'll, we'll jump into the first point. Verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Verse 10, And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desired to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. All right, four points today. Here's the first point with true generosity. True generosity, Paul says, finishes what it starts. All right, true generosity finishes what it starts. What he says in verse 10 is like, hey, you, you know this. A year ago, you wanted to do this. It's been a year. And you can actually go back in 1 Corinthians and see that. He goes, now it's time, and I, I love the way he says it, so now finish doing it. You wanted to do it, now finish doing it. They agreed with the idea of giving and being generous, but agreeing with something is not the same as doing. And I want to be really clear, actually, just word it this way. There is a danger in agreeing, but a blessing in doing. It's really easy for us, and I want you to think about this, not just generosity, any topic, it's easy to come and be like, I agree. I really think that's true. We should do that. We should be about it. Don't be confused. Agreeing is not the same as doing. It's funny, I talk to people who are like, I just want a church that's all about discipleship. I love discipleship. It's all about discipleship. And I'm like, do you disciple? Like, the idea is like, they love the idea of it. I want a church that lives missionally, that's on mission, that cares about lost people. Who is the last person you shared the gospel with or invited them out to hear the gospel? The point is, it's funny that we can agree with things, and just because we agree with it doesn't mean we're doing it. And I really believe this can be an issue in my life. You know, we live in a generation that just is this limitless information. I mean, you, you, we have access to phenomenal Bible teachings, Bible study tools. We can study it in depth. And just because we as a church, just because we agree with it does not mean we're doing it. And I really think there's a danger in this. Like, I want to wake us up a little bit. Obviously, James said this. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. There's, you can be deceived if you just go, I hear this, I agree with this, this is good, but we're not doing it. Paul's like, you know, a year ago you want to do this, now finish doing it. True generos generosity finishes what it starts. Um, another way of just putting this down is, the blessing is not in agreeing, it's in doing. The blessing is in doing. Jesus said this in John 13, 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's like, if you know these things, and he's talking about love, he's talking about abiding, he goes, and if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing comes in doing, not in agreeing. And again, I just want to say this in a bigger picture for us as a church. I love that we love the word. I love that I see you guys taking notes. I love that we walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by verse. I love that, but I don't want to just agree with it. There comes a point in time we have to do it. Amen? And Paul is saying, hey, awesome, awesome. I love that you guys wanted to give a year ago. 
It's like, it's been a year. Now do it. Now finish doing it. You know, it's hard. I think it's hard not to get bitter on both ends. I've been in different conversations where I don't pursue people say, hey, I feel like God's put my heart to give this amount. And I'm like, wow, what a blessing. And that obviously never happens. And you go, how do I navigate this? How do I not get bitter about that? How does that affect? And in reality, I just love Paul. Paul's like, hey, that's not generosity. Don't worry about that. A true generosity will just finish what it starts. This is what, it's just, that's just what it does. Someone who's genuinely generous, and it's funny, if I were to ask you, you ask me, are you generous? Most people think they're generous. I think the reality of that is sometimes we just need to ask a friend, hey, here's how much I make, here's how much I give, am I generous? <laughs> you know, like what if we were actually, there's accountability there. What if there's like, you know what, am I being generous? My wife, Paul's like, hey, you want to do it, now finish it. Here's the second point. Number two is this. True generosity just meets needs. I mean, if you think about it, true generosity sees there's a need, let's meet it. Let's look in verse 12 where we pick up. Verse 12, number two, Paul says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, or some say justice, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or justice. Listen, true generosity just meets needs. Uh, this is the one thing I just want to kind of point out in this. Uh, someone who's generous says, hey, there's a need. I want to I meet it. If there's something going on, I want to meet it. You know, Jonathan Edwards says, the gospel obliges us to give when we are in distress to those who are in greater distress than us. How else will we bear one another's burdens? It's saying, you know, obviously I have needs, but there's a greater need. He says, there's a need there. Now, I want to point out verse 12 and 13, because he's saying, God's not saying give something you don't have. He's like, give what you're able to. It's not like, and I think you've seen this, sadly, we've seen this in the churches throughout time. It's like, hey, you know what, God has a need. Why don't you go take out a loan, go into debt, and give? No, uh, that's not the point. He's like, you can't, there's certain things you just give what you're able to. I would say this, let me put it this way. Um, start at a very young age. For any of you who's in high school, college, post-college, and you're like, I barely make money, I'm in college. You know, don't assume once you make more money, you'll be generous. I think that's a, that's a trap a lot of us fall into. I would say start at a young age. Say, you know what, I only make 50 bucks a month then tithe. Like my point is then give, then be generous. Then look at it as an opportunity to say, I'm not going to wait till I make more because that is a trap I've seen just we all fall into. Well, once I make more, but then once you make more, you go, but there's still people who make more. And then like, once I make this, and here's the thing, just true generosity says, there's a need. I want to meet it. I want to be a part of this. I don't, I don't, I want to be a part of what God is doing here. Actually, uh, keep going. Verse 13 is interesting to me. I want to point this out. Verse 13, he says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, uh, he's talking about justice. I, he's like, I don't want to make, put them in luxury and put you now in a bad place. It's not that they're going to be, you know, living in abundance and now you're in a bad place, but it's a matter of fairness. Like, now what is this? Uh, some people use the word justice. I love, Tim Keller wrote a book called Generous Justice, and he describes justice in this way. Uh, justice is when needs meet deeds. It's when there's a need and a deed meets it. So there's a need and you say, hey, I, I just want to meet that need. That's what justice looks like. There's a need there. Let me meet that. Now, I'm bringing this up because there are some, and not many, but they take verse 12 through 14 and they've tried to use this as an argument for biblical communism or biblical socialism. They'll say, look at this. It's a matter of fairness. You're wealthy. You should become poor so you can kind of put in the same stratus or level. The more the heart and idea was if there's a need there, you meet that need. There's a famine in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a need. It's not saying you become poor. He's saying just meet the need. Uh, I want to point this out because I think that there has been or maybe 
maybe is in some ways a movement for that, trying to use biblical arguments for those things. I like how Warren Wearsby put it. He says, 2 Corinthians 8.13 is a direct statement against communism. The so-called communism of the early church has no relationship to the communistic, political, and economic systems that are promoted today. The early Christians, like many Christians today, voluntarily shared what they had, but did not force people to participate. Again, don't forget that the gospel is not obligation. It's not law. It's not, we're going to take it at the point of government or the point of a gun, but we're going to say, will you voluntarily meet the need? Uh, David Guzik, another commentator, I think said it really well. He says, the equality Paul mentioned here isn't meant to imply socialism or communism, uh, where all are said to live at the same economic level and none are supposed to be richer than others. Of course, communism and socialism themselves uh, are evil, being noble ideas in theory, but absolute tyrannies when sharing is commanded at the end of a gun. But this is not the kind of equality Paul means anyway. The reason why I just want to come in this way, because I think that I have seen this used, or especially these verses used in that way. Here's the biblical idea of justice. John says, if you see your brother in need and you shut up your heart, how is the love of God in you? This is not about obligation. It's not like you have to. This is out of, I voluntarily want to do this. 1 John 3.17 makes that clear. If you have the world's goods and see your brothers in need, or your sister in need, don't shut up your heart towards them, because then the love of God obviously is not there. The idea is if there's a need and I'm able to meet that, we're able to meet that, we want to meet that. You know, it's so cool. We got together with a group of our leaders on, on Friday night. We just talked about that. We said, hey, is there any needs among us? Is there any needs among us? A couple of names are thrown out. A couple of thoughts are thrown out. It's like, okay, how can we meet those needs? It is so cool because I get to be a part of just seeing you guys meeting needs in so many different ways. Very thankful for that. We don't want to have any needs among us. Like, there's no needs. If there's truly a need here, we want to come alongside, disciple, help, and then practically give. Yes, there might be a vetting process. Yes, there might be a, a process we come alongside. But we want to come alongside and be a part. If there's any need, we want to be a part of that. I think in, in all of this process, if we're talking through generosity and yet there's needs among us that are not being met, we're missing the point. You know, I love Galatians 6.10. It says, do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith. We want to be a blessing to this community and the community around us. Amen? And Paul says, if there's a need, this need will be met. Let me give one more verse that goes in line with this. Paul, actually in 1 Timothy 6, speaking directly to wealthy people. And if you think that's not me, I mean, we live in America and we are truly in the top 90% of the world, even at the lowest stratosphere, you could say, like we're in the top 90%. Here's what Paul says. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't, don't, don't be prideful. Not to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on provides us with everything to enjoy. Amen? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can obviously have wealth and still be very, very empty on the inside. That's why Paul is like, make sure the wealthy, he says the wealthy, are generous because God gives us everything to enjoy. Because in reality, you could have all of those things and still not enjoy them, and still not enjoy life. That comes from Jesus, that sense of satisfaction and enjoyment. But I love this, because I don't think this is just for like one person in here. I think this is a call for us, because I think that we'd all, in some level, you could say, are incredibly wealthy. When you compare yourself maybe to other Americans, you could say, well, I can make an argument I'm not. But when you look at the rest of the world, you can say, no, God has blessed us, how can we be a blessing? 
And this is Paul's uh, encouragement to them. Now in verse 15, Paul uses an Old Testament scripture to kind of communicate this of meeting needs. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. All right, stay with me, stay with me. Paul uses an example out of the Old Testament with manna. You guys remember the story of manna? The nation of Israel are hungry. They're wandering the wilderness. God brings them manna. Now, manna was this wonderful heavenly bread. It was awesome. It described, honestly, as like a treat, right? And every morning, they would gather the manna. They would collect the manna. Eventually, uh, they got kind of sick of manna, and they complained. And God's like, I'll give you something to complain about, and you can read that later. But like, basically, God's just providing for them all the time with this heavenly wonder bread. And they, they would gather it. And says this in Exodus 16, some gathered much and some little. He who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. So in the morning when the manna appeared or was there, they would gather it, and if they had too much, apparently they would share it with each other. Hey, I got it. Maybe I'm faster, younger. You didn't get it. Let me give you some of my manna. He says, actually in Exodus, if anyone hoarded the manna, it would begin to rot, and there was a stench, and it was awful. The manna only lasted, like, basically the day. That's why we see this in the, in the Lord's prayer of, give us this day our daily bread. There's a couple things here with that story in Exodus 16 we got to point out. One, we know that everything comes from God. It's easy to be like, I collected this manna. This is my manna. It's like, this is just heavenly wonder bread that just shows up and you just collect it. All right, this comes from God. All right, if anyone begins to get prideful and say, look at my skills, my talents, my abilities, look what I did. Again, God reminds us, ultimately everything is from him. I mentioned this last week, but the breath in your lungs the healthy body you have, where you live today, 2021 in America. We're not born in the 12th century in Tibet. Like we're here in a really blessed moment of time and moment of history. There's a side of this that you say, wow, God, I can't take any credit for the manna I collected. Like ultimately you get all the credit and all the glory. Ultimately all of this is yours. The manna reminded them that they get to participate in it, but ultimately this was God's. Secondly, there's no need. Like, they share. There's a need. Okay, I'll share. I have extra banana. My, banana. Uh, like, banana. I don't know. I have extra banana bread, right? I'll share my banana with you. <laughs> but the idea is, like, they just share. There's a need. Let's meet it. Paul is basically saying, listen, true generosity is that. If someone's in need, you go, I'm going to meet that need. If someone has lack, I want, I want to be part of this. And remember this. If they hoarded it, it would rot. And sometimes, again, it's not that wealth or having money in retirement is bad by any means. Proverbs talks about that. It talks about the wisdom of saving and of investing. Of course, there's wealth. To, there's, there's wisdom to that. But what it does talk about is sometimes that can begin to rot. Sometimes when you have maybe to the point where you go, is this rotting my soul? Rotting who I am? Just like the banana, the banana, the manna would begin to rot. The idea was like, is, could this produce that in me? Is it beginning to rot my heart? Again, money, we talked about this last week, is not evil. Money is neutral. The love of money, though, is a root of all kinds of evil. And sometimes the desire or the love of it can do something to my heart, to your heart. We have to be highly aware. And that's why Paul's like, give. Be generous. Don't forget what happened in the Old Testament. It rotted. But if there is lack, they shared it. True generosity meets needs. Amen? Now we're going to look at number three. True generosity glorifies God. Now we're going to read a longer section, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. So let's just read this as a whole and kind of get a feel uh, for what he's ultimately saying, how we give and how we manage. Look at verse 16. He says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches. Like, who is this? For his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, 
but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace, this act of grace. Remember, generosity is an act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's side, but also in the side of man. And with them, we are sending our brothers whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as our brother, they are messengers of the church of the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. All right, true generosity glorifies God. Two things I want to point out. Paul points out that. He points out uh, that this brings glory to God ultimately when you give well, but also he talks about how it's managed well. Notice he says in verse 16, but thanks be to God, and he talks about Titus and a couple other brothers they are sending. Now he thanks God for these men, and if you you didn't notice, he actually kind of walks through the character of these men who are collecting this gift to bring it to Jerusalem. I want to point this out because this obviously is very important. How do you manage what's given? We want there to be a sense of appointing, a a vetting, uh, making sure men, women of good character who collect are over this. So here's what Paul points out. We'll briefly walk through this, but notice these verses here. He says, first of all, they're compassionate. They have the same earnest care I have for you. He's like, you know, people who care, we don't want just people who care about money. We want people who care about the people. The people who manage the funds are the people who care about people. Because it's about that compassion, they care about you, the, the earnest zeal for you. Keep going. He says they're diligent, they're willing. Verse 17, they're very earnest. He is going to you of his own accord. They want to go on their own. No one's forcing them to do this. They're diligent. The word earnest means diligent. They're thorough. They're willing. They want to be a part. We're told in 1 Peter 5 that a servant of the Lord must, or a pastor, really, elder, must be willing. They want to be a part of this. The next characteristic, the burden for the lost. I love how he says the famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know, we know it's Titus. We don't know who he's talking about. There's so much debate. It really doesn't matter. So I'm like, it's Apollos because he's such a good preacher. Or it's Luke because there's all, we don't know, but there's two other people that Paul's saying, you know, he's famous among you. But notice this, for known for what? For preaching the gospel. These people that handle this, they care about the gospel. Their passion is lost souls. That's who's handling this. Next character, verse 21. We see that there's just character. Uh, we aim at what is honorable, not only on the Lord's side, but also on the side of man. We'll get back to that. We got to care about what, how does the Lord view this? And how do men view this? How we handle this? They have men of character. Next, we see this. They are competent and vetted. Look at verse 22. We'll put the verse up. We have often tested and found earnest in many matters. We've tested them. They've been found diligent, earnest, in many matters. There's a side of vetting, getting to know, testing the character. We'll keep going. Just I want you to see the big picture. Um, he says, and then verse 19, as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. This is for the glory of God. Now, the reason why I just want to walk through this is Paul is saying, it's not just about how you give or who you're giving. Not about that, but also the, the character of those who are coming to you. You know, there's a side of this, obviously, we want you to know, like, there's a, a vetting process. We do have deacons who run our benevolence fund, who we went, you know, we've spent some time with them over the, the years. We got to go through a, a course on just what is a deacon, an interview process, other people affirming them. There's a side of this where they handle money for the, the needs. 
We want this to be in any situation, myself included. We have a board who goes over the budget, four other pastors who go through the budget, approve the budget, are sent to financials. I, they don't, I don't vote on my salary, they vote on my salary. I step out, they lead that conversation. We have an outside accountant who gets the money and reconciles it and makes sure everything is lined up correctly. The reason why I want to mention this is because, again, so often the church get, does get a bad rap, and you want to say, no, listen, our heart here is to glorify God and it's done well on the side of men, verse 21. And that's interesting. Paul was not a man pleaser, but Paul knew it was important that this be done very, very well. He says, I ultimately want God to be glorified in this, and I want people to see how it's handled and say, God, you're so good in this. You know, if you think about this, this goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said in Matthew 5. We'll read it. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 14. Paul, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Listen, here's what I want to bring up. The church has had a bad rap. I'd say for a long time, really, when it comes to this topic, what if the church or the world saw how the church gave and how the church handled this, and they said, wow, they really do meet needs. When there's a worldwide catastrophic event, the church is the first in the scene. While when there's a need among their own community, they meet those needs. When there's a need amongst like the, the cities, amongst them, they care for the lost, they care for the poor. They actually step in. What if we could kind of redeem the narrative around this? That when men see our good works, they glorify our Father in heaven. You know what I was so encouraged by this week? This week, the school reached out to us and just simply asked, hey, um, we want to feed the teachers. Would you host this? Now, what they're really asking is like, would you pay for this meal? Uh, it's gonna be like 700 bucks and we just want to, you know, we don't want to pay it. Would you pay it? And you're like, you know what? Yes. Like, of course. We didn't plan this. We didn't really put it in. But like, we're, we're going to make it happen. And I love that they reached out. Now, of course, you could say it's just a free meal, but it gives us an opportunity to love the churches here. Say there's a need. We'll meet that need. I want to say thank you for that. The fact that we can do that, they can just email us the week before and say, can you pay for the meal on Wednesday? Like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We email back though, but can we be there and serve it there? Like we just want, can we be there? And they're like, yes. So by the way, this is like a last minute announcement because we just got asked this week. But if you would like to serve uh, the, the teachers here, for reals, uh, between 11.30 to 1 o'clock, we're going to be here feeding them PDQ. All right. Um, and our hope is just to introduce ourselves, be like, hey, we're the ones who left your class uh, messy. No, hopefully that doesn't happen. But we just want to meet them, talk to them, get to know them, love on them. Thank you for loving these kids. Thank you for letting us be here. It's a privilege. We want to take advantage of that and just say thank you. Our hope is this, even in these small little moments we get, that when they see our good works, they glorify Father in heaven. They say, wow, you know what? Thank you for just meeting. You guys have been so good to us. We want our reputation to be not that this church comes to the school and takes away, but we leave it better. We bless them. We bless the teachers. We leave it in a better place than how we received it. That is our hope in this. That is our hope in this as we deal with the world. He's just saying, hey, listen, I want to make sure you guys handle this well. The glory of this. A couple different times, 19, 21, 23, the glory of Christ, the glory of the Lord. Listen, true generosity. The point is not that we get praised, wow, this church is so good, but that they glorify God and say, God is so good. And we don't know how that happens. It can happen the smallest, most, like, you know, we sent them uh, pens one year, and it's funny, we got a letter, thank you so much for these pens for our whiteboards. I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that meant something. But it's so cool, they'd take note of that and say, Lord, we hope you're glorified in this process. True generosity meets needs. Amen? The announcement is over. Uh, number four, true generosity. True generosity, verse one through five. True generosity is plans. True, tr true generosity doesn't just happen. All right, let's read verse one. Chapter nine, verse one. You guys ready? Yeah? You okay? We're gonna go through it. Verse one. Paul says, now it is superfluous. I can't even say that word. Superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. It's not necessary because you know. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is Corinth is a part of that, has been ready since last year, <laughs> and your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Uh, I find this very interesting. Paul is saying, um, we want to come to you. We want this to be planned. Like, generosity doesn't just happen. He's saying, have the gift ready. I love this because this is interesting to me. He ha- this is kind of awkward, right? He's like, I'm sending some people ahead. I want you to be able to give the gift willingly so we don't show up and we're like, so where's the money, right? I feel like Paul's being awkward in this letter ahead of time. Paul has foresight. Let me just say this. Paul's addressing what he thinks might happen. He thinks he might get there and be like, guys, it's been a year. I wrote a letter. How come it's still not ready? The church is in need. Why are we waiting? It's been a year. Like, let's get the money there. He has the foresight to say, listen, I'm going to send some men ahead. We've been bragging about you to the Macedonian churches. Please make sure that's not in vain. <laughs> like, I feel like that's such a parent talking to like a child. Like, hey, we, we've been like, you know, boasting about you. Like, you guys have been crushing it. Make sure it doesn't go in vain. Like, can you have it ready? I'm sending them ahead of you. So here's the point. True generosity is planned out. True generosity is thought through. It doesn't just happen. I really think this is an important thing to take note of. Because it can happen early on where you go, man, I really want to be generous. I'll see what I have left in my budget. That is not true generosity, right? True generosity is truly planned out. It's thought through. It's saying, hey, Lord, this thing of first fruits, giving you my first, I want to give you my first. I want to be a part of that. This is not like, if I have enough, then I will give. The idea is like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll have to later say no to some things throughout this week or month in order to give. Paul was very systematic and strategic in this. And I think there's something about that. You know, when my wife and I talk through it, we have to talk through it. If we say, hey, you know, this is what we give, but do we want to give more? Do we want to give to this charity? Do we want to give to this nonprofit? Do we want to give more to the building fund? What does this look like? It has to be thought through. It has to be planned out. It doesn't just happen. And we want to make sure we do that. That way it doesn't just happen. Paul says something actually really similar in 1 Corinthians 16. I'll just throw the verse up here. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. He says, listen to this. Concerning the collection for the saints, this is a year ago, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Again, same issue. I don't want to come and have the collection there. Store it up. First day of the week. This is why historically churches on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, have passed the plate or done something to that extent. Like just historically speaking, on the first day of the week, set something aside, give it for those needs. It's not one week. On the first day of the week, he's speaking in an ongoing tense. The point of this is like it was a part of their practice, a part of their lifestyle. Generosity didn't just happen. It wasn't like a later side note thing. It was continuous. It was ongoing. It was planned. This is the heart of what we see in Paul. The reason, again, why I'm bringing this up is Paul's like, listen, I don't want to be embarrassed, and I don't want you to be embarrassed. Know what I find really interesting about this? Paul used the Church of Macedonia as example to the Corinthians. He goes, look at what they're doing. Don't you want to be a part? But then he's also used the the church. Church of Corinth to the Macedonians, like, look at their heart to give a year ago. He's using them both as an example to say, look, don't you want to be a part of what God is doing? Now, I think again, this is planned, it's thought through, and this is how God has viewed it. Now, notice this, he talks about humiliation. They live in an honor-shame culture. It's different than ours, a little bit different than ours. They live in a very honor-based and a shame-based culture. I don't want you to be, I don't want to be humiliated. It's funny, a Greek 
just history tells us that when there is like benefactors who wanted to give and they promised maybe a certain amount to like Greek temples, if they didn't follow through on their gift, they would actually write the names of those benefactors who didn't fully give on the temple or on the agora. They'd write the names down like, hey, here's who promised to give and they didn't give. So we actually have here on our screen today, those who, no, I'm kidding. They would do that. It was like, the point was just like, we're going to acknowledge, there's like, they based on that. And Paul knows that. He knows their culture. And he's saying, listen, don't you want to be aware of this? Now, here's what I want to end with. And please do not miss the big picture. Please not miss the big picture. You say, why is Paul being so specific and so detailed? Why is he talking about the collection, the distribution of it? Why is he talking about these brothers? Why is he talking about what true generosity really looks like? You're going to finish what you start. Why does he do this? Because ultimately money, again, represents something a lot bigger. God ultimately says, I want you to live for something bigger than what's in front of you. We know this, and it's maybe a cheesy saying that we've heard before. But listen, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You and I cannot take everything we've accumulated in this life with us. But according to Jesus, you and I can send it ahead. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6, and this is the big picture, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know we know this. I know we've heard this, but think of the importance of this. Paul is saying the reason why I'm being so thorough, so extensive, is because in reality, what we give reflects our heart. It's not the amount we give. Next week, we'll get more into the cheerfulness, the, the how we do it. But, and I, I love the text next week. Paul talks about the blessing in it. There's so much good insight there. But it's, it's more about, I want your heart to be in heaven. If you're constantly focused on this world, you're going to be constantly thinking about your future, your retirement, this, that. Paul's like, say, listen, send it ahead. You're not going to be able to take it with you. I mean, you, you and I can wonder, say, why does the Bible talk so much about this? Why does Jesus talk so much about this? Why does the New Testament, at least here, talk so much about this? Because ultimately, God wants our heart. He knows that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Listen, if you invest into eternal things, watch your heart follow. If you invest into things of this world, watch your heart follow. My heart's going to follow where I put my treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I feel like this is a really misquoted verse. People say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. No, no, no. Y your heart might not be there yet. If you put your treasure in heaven, watch your heart follow for the things of heaven. You know, it's not like, oh, I have a heart for this, I'm gonna give to it. Sometimes that happens. But start putting your treasure there and watch your heart follow. I would say this is just a true principle in general. I remember when I first really took my faith serious in high school, and I've mentioned this before, but just people I couldn't stand or, or just didn't want to be around, like I, I truly hated them, right? One of the first things that happened in my heart was I started praying for these people. God, bless them. I can't stand them, God. Help me. Help me love them. God, help me see them different. How do you see them, Jesus? Bless them. Bless their, bless their, and I'd just pray blessings over them. Guess what would happen? When I'd see them, I could actually look them eye to eye. You know what it's like when you don't like someone? I can just look at my eye and say, hey, how are you? And mean it. Because why? Where my treasure is there, my heart will be also. I just feel like this is so true in so many different scenarios. You feel like my heart's not in it. That's fine. Put your treasure there. Watch your heart follow. See, ultimately God is saying, hey, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You know, we've seen, we've seen the opposite of this. We've seen people invest into this world and lose it. A couple of quick little stories. I thought it was funny. I just wanted to read. I had to Google this. Just some famous lottery stories of people who lost it all. I thought it was funny. Um, Evelyn Adams. In the mid-80s, Evelyn, Evelyn Adams won the lottery twice. Twice. Once in 1985 and once in 1986 to defy all odds. 
The New Jersey native won $5.4 million. But she was a heavy gambler, and with Atlantic City being located in New Jersey, it wasn't long before Adams had lost all her money today. She now lives in a trailer park and is flat broke. Another person, William Post. 1988, William Post won $16.2 million in 1988 uh, in, in Pennsylvania State Lottery. This was the start of his problems. Soon after, his ex-girlfriend sued him for a share of his winnings and won a large amount. Then his brother hired a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit some of his winnings. Within one year, William was $1 million in debt and filed for bankruptcy, and he now lives on food stamps and a $450 a month stipend. The guy wins the lottery. His brother tries to murder him. Kelly Rogers won last one. Uh, she won about $3 million in the UK lottery. She was 16 years old. I guess you're 16 there. I don't know. Uh, she spent her, her money on vacations, home, shopping, friends, and some physical uh, improvements. Uh, six years later, she's 22, and she's a single mother, too, who now works as a maid to sustain herself and her family. Today, she is paying off debt, induced by her spending, and she has, this, she has this to say about her winnings. Quote, it's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. She said winning the lottery ruined her life. All right, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we can live so often for the things of the world, and it's like the manna. You collect, you collect, you collect, you hoard, and it rots. It either rots your soul, rots you in the process. The point of this, it's not, again, when you read texts like this, we went through 21 verses. When you read texts like this, you're like, why? Why is it so fixated? Because God knows where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. God knows that this maybe could be the best thing or the worst thing that could happen to you. Money is a neutral thing. Ultimately, God wants your heart and my heart. The reason why even for us as we walk through this, you guys, is not through manipulation, not through guilt in any way. I pray the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the generosity of God who gave his best for you and I, that is our motivation. Do not give if it cannot be out of cheerfulness and generosity. Do not even, don't think, it doesn't matter. God, we're going to talk about this more next week, but God loves a cheerful giver. God always ultimately wants your heart and my heart in the process. Paul is going through this process, say, church, manage it well, and be genuinely generous when it comes to this. Don't force it. Don't fake it. Don't, don't forget about it, but be genuinely generous. We just want to do this. I feel like when we talk about this topic, our only response should be worship, that this would glorify God, because, and so often we can miss the point. Generosity is to glorify God so that when men see our good works, they glorify our Father in heaven. We want to pray for that on Wednesday when we meet the faculty and the, student, the teachers here. We just want to pray for that and just moving forward that anything, anything we do when it comes to this topic would glorify God, that glorify Jesus. Amen? Can we worship? And let's just uh, pray for a second. Father, we just want to thank you for your word for this time. God, we ask that you would be here that this would be something your, your spirit does within us. God, I pray that for myself and others here, God, if our fingers or our fists are just clenched and we're just fighting this, that Jesus, that the, your gospel, your good news, who you are, what you've done, that you would soften our hearts, that you, you would motivate us, that your love would compel us. And Jesus, we just trust you. This is, we just want more of you in this process. We just want to have our heart in heaven. We want to have our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. And so, Jesus, we ask that you do that within us. We love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your generosity towards us. So, God, we just want to praise you now. In your precious name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Hey, why don't you just stand with me? Let's worship God. Let's sing to God. Let's thank God. Thanks be to God. Glory be to God for his generous gift in his son, Jesus. Let's worship.